Hey, welcome to the locker room where we break down sermon stories and scripture for the race of our faith. Two quick announcements. We never do announcements on here, but we're going to do it today. Love it. Uh, Quinn's wife, Haley, has graciously set up an Instagram account. She's doing a great job. She's killing it. And uh, yeah, so if that's your thing, at Crossroads Locker Room. Go follow it, I guess. Um, like just personally or like for uh, the No, podcast? for the locker room. Okay. I'm going to take a selfie right now. Okay. Here we go. First locker room selfie. All oh, right. I'm terrible Scott at this. Scott is taking terrible. a locker room selfie. Um, okay. <laughs> and then we also have 24-7 prayer as a church um, that we're leaning into for 2024, specifically the first week of 2024. And so if you go on our website, on the top banner, you can click to the right, and you will find a link there that you can sign up. And this is something that we're leaning into as a church whole. So just encourage you that if you're listening to this, go sign up. There is no reason that every slot shouldn't be signed up. We are a big enough church to make it happen. And uh, beyond that, it's just a beautiful thing. And prayer is super important. You got anything to add there, Libby? So is it the first week of the year? First week of the year, yeah. Starts on the 31st in 2023. We'll pray into the new year and then we'll have a midweek prayer and worship night on January 3rd, Wednesday, and then we will celebrate what God has done through that week of prayer on the 7th, which is the first Sunday of 2024. Yeah, and we're awesome. encouraging people to come here to the prayer space to pray, but for those of you that are listening that maybe aren't in this area, feel free to pick a time slot and just pray for pray wherever us, you yeah. are. Pray with us. I can't think of a better way to bring in the new year, 2024, um, and all that God has for us. So, yeah. As always, my co-host is with me, Libby Van Salkema, and the newly named Dr. <laughs> Scott Gustafson. And uh, how does it feel that you are now officially a doctor? Ironically, no different. I, I wish it felt better and <laughs> entitled me to more privileges. That's what the diploma says, but I haven't really seen what those are yet. So. Yeah, here we go. Well... Yeah. We have uh, a term for that, yeah. a long ladder for a short slide. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand that one. Are you serious? You know how when you were a little kid, you climbed up a ladder, and then you went down <laughs> oh, yeah. a slide okay. that was directly proportioned to how high you climbed up? Yeah. Yeah. This is one. Yeah. Of, some things in life yeah. are not, the slide is not proportionate not to the ladder. Yeah. yeah. Although I'm sure I know just how hard you had to work to do that. I'm sure it is proportional. Hmm. We'll see. In a lot of ways, yeah. I'm just sitting at the top of the slide right now, <laughs> contemplating, should I, should you what should I down? do? <laughs> should I climb back down the ladder? I don't know. <laughs> and are, don't do that. Are my legs going to get the skin scraped off of them when <laughs> I go down that hot metal slide <laughs> on a July afternoon? All right, we've exhausted the metaphor. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you remember those? I mean, we I had one right by my. We no, had... we had one right by my house, and the thing would get like 130 degrees in the summer, <laughs> and you'd have to like lift your legs up just to go down. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so this last weekend we we talked about Genesis 10 and 11. I really focused on Genesis chapter 11 for most of the study on Sunday. But Genesis chapter 10 actually has a lot of stuff that, if we understand it, can really expand our understanding of not just the world that we live in right now, but the biblical worldview. And uh, we'll, we call this chapter the table 
of nations. And it's essentially this ethnographic map of the world at the time. And we're given 70 names. And maybe we could start there. Why, I mean, are there more people than these 70 names? And why is it the number 70? And why is that significant? Yeah, well, that's why we've asked the expert. Today and uh, yeah, help so us out with some of this. To us, numbers are just numbers, but in the biblical mm. worldview, numbers actually mean something. So yeah. let's start with the number seven. What's the number seven? Yeah, so seven or its multiples would be considered complete or perfection. Three is also kind of a mirror of that. So we have the concept of the Trinity as being complete or perfect. Um, and then six would be just shy of that, so imperfect. So those are common things that are mm-hmm. repeated. And then when Jesus, for example, uses the 70 times seven, that's like over and above way, way more infinite than you know even the concept of seven or 70. And then yeah. 10, what's that? I don't know, what's 10? 10? 10 is like <laughs> wealth or perfection, Okay. right? And so yeah. there's a wealth of people, seven times 10, is this like complete affirmation of completeness and unity. At least that's what the scholars say. That's good. (laughs) 40 is another common one. Yes. And 40 shows up all over our text, and that's kind of a um, number of preparation or um, testing, Mm -hmm. I would say, before the next stage of ministry or whatever God has next for this group of people. So 40 is another big one. I think in, um, in the Western mindset, Numbers for us are just values, mm-hmm. but in the Eastern mindset, like you mentioned, they're a much, they hold a pictures, wider depth yeah. of meaning, um, mm-hmm. kind of like doorknobs, like we've talked about on before here, where the Hebrew language, those three letter roots can just be doorknobs that can lead you to like a treasure of concepts. Yes. The same is kind of true for numbers, I think. I think the closest thing we might have um, in the Western mindset, might be 13. Mm-hmm. So that's like an unlucky number. Like cruise ships don't have the 13th floor. So that number means more. I mean, it's basically just yeah. hocus pocus. But in our mindset, that number means more to us than just a value. And a lot of numbers, I think, in the Eastern mindset have those kind of connotations yes. uh, above and beyond just a value. And it's yeah. a it's an interesting like um, thing we miss too when we read the scriptures in English because that's not our world. So like reading Genesis, you guys have talked about this as you've preached through it, but the the word pictures, like names are important, numbers are important. Directions. Directions, east and west, and also the trilateral roots and linguistics are important. We miss that. Mm-hmm. So like we'll talk about names today, but Shem, for example, is the Hebrew word for name. So mm-hmm. he was named name. <laughs> but then God chooses Abraham to make a name. So there's all these echoes and, and things like that in the in the linguistic sense, too. Yeah, in a previous podcast, my friend Kim said, we're low-context readers. Mm-hmm. We just don't have the fullness um, because we come from a different culture. It's basically yeah. a cross-cultural experience. Yeah. But I also want to emphasize that doesn't mean that we can't grab significant meaning from it. Like there's no... Um, there's no, you, you have to know these clues in order to, you know, get to the mystery or the mm-hmm. root of yeah. what's being said. Right. God's word is clear. Um, but if you do know some of the context, it just makes it rich yeah. and easier and to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's no, this isn't, we're, we're not Gnostics. There's nothing secret that we're trying to uncover or discover sure. that gets us 
There's no Da Vinci higher, higher Code. Planes. Exactly. Higher <laughs> well, yeah. Planes I mean, it's a it's a really good point to make too, because lots of Christians. I just saw something pop up today. It was a reminder of um, a prediction of when the rapture was going to happen based on numerology and the Old Testament and how many Psalms divided by whatever. Like, I mean, you know, Christians yeah. even in our day have tried to do these sorts of things, and it wasn't the intention. It's not the intention yeah. of the scripture, even though these are word pictures. Yes. The numbers have meaning. But we go too far with that, and all of a sudden we're, you know, reading things into the text that aren't there. Yeah, and we're also saying, right. not saying that this isn't true, just because it have has word pictures in it, and the, these numbers become symbolic. Because, you know, we have things like verse five of this table of nations kind of lets the reader off the hook for understanding that all of the names here are not exhaustive, that there's actually more peoples that are spreading out from this, but that number actually represents that word picture that this is a complete whole of how humanity is spreading across the earth from Noah, Mm -hmm. descended through his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is actually significant because I love how Nahum Sarna, a Jewish scholar, puts it. He says, this document is no mere academic exercise. It affirms a common human origin Mm -hmm. and a unity of all humankind. One main point that we might take for granted about uh, this passage that shouldn't go unnoticed is that it is affirming the common origin of the human race. And then it tacitly but effectively asserts that all of the varied instrumentality of human divisiveness is all secondary to the essential unity of the international community. Mm. Now that's like professor speak. But what's he saying there? Mm. Yeah, I I think this is the kind of takeaway. We're getting an application already. But having a common origin also means that we all take our life and breath from a creator who has made us in his image. And that concept of Imago Dei we talk about a lot around here. But that means that we have no enemies. And as Christians, that's kind of a modus operandi like when we see other people even intending to do us harm our posture towards them is they're made in the image of god they're fallen just like me they have needs just like me and the the idea of enemy needs to be sort of a foreign thing for us as christians who are living into that so the movement of scripture from being created in the image of god falling away from that and then being restored through it through the perfect human um, and then restored ultimately in in our kind of revelation story is kind of uh, keeping that in mind is important through these origin stories in Genesis. So then at the beginning, what you're saying, Scott, is we have Genesis here where we're all made in the image of God, like we saw in Genesis 1, um, and then all these people groups have that same root. Mm. And then you mentioned Revelation, where we're going to be all gathered around that throne, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So you have like part one and then the other bookend with the same thing that God's hoping for, that yeah. his heart would be for the nations. Yes. The, you're saying we should have that heart. Yeah, that's that's kind of what's being called out in us, I think, through the scripture. Mm. The other cool piece of this, like if I can geek out on like a theological concept is... I feel like you're starting to go down the do slide. It. I'm going down bit. the slide. <laughs> All right, we'll see how long it is. The, so like our concept of who God is and our picture of who he is cannot be complete without the cultures of the world. Culture is a God-instituted, ordained thing, and um, for so, for example, like we we can't um, as as Americans in the 21st century have an accurate understanding of all the intricacies of God's personality, even God's own internal culture, the culture of the Trinity at table. Mm-hmm. So we can't have that picture unless we experience the 
millennia-long covenantal commitment of the Hebrew people. We can't experience that until we understand the depth of hospitality and self-sacrifice of the Bedouin Arab, until we get the um, artistic beauty of French culture, until we, like, I, I could go on and on and name these awesome things. The entrepreneurship of the American culture, certainly that's there. Yeah. There's good things about culture and language that are present. There's bad things too, but in the sum of that, we get the beauty of the Imago Dei. And so without it, and we'll get into Babel yeah. in a minute, when we insist on one culture over others, we're, we're kind of neglecting some good things about who God is. Yeah, I remember when um, Rod and I lived in Israel, we were lucky enough to be there over the um, Palm Sunday. And so we took this, there's this parade that comes into Jerusalem, kind of like a pilgrimage type scenario. And so we, we walked with this whole throng of masses of people um, into the old city of Jerusalem, taking the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. Um, it's tradition for a lot of people. But then when we got to a certain point, we actually entered this hotel and went to the rooftop and watched the throngs of people that were coming from afar off mm -hmm. and coming down the hillside through those narrow streets of Jerusalem. And it was so amazing to see because they would be in people groups, yeah. you know, the different expressions of celebration of the fact that the king came into the city riding on a donkey, that that prophecy was realized. And you could just see the different languages singing, the different mm. colors, the different expressions. And Rod and I were just in awe of mm. the fact that this is what God hopes for. Yeah. This is the heart of God. And this is right here. We're looking at an expression mm -hmm. um, of what he's created and all the different people groups that he loves. Yeah. And also a picture of what Revelation is going to be like. Yes. It was beautiful. Yeah, and that's really the sin of Babel. And we can talk all over. We can kind of go bounce back and forth because there's a lot to talk about. But the sin of Babel is unity through uniformity. Mm -hmm. It's here's all of these people yeah. clustered under one tyrannical ruler in Nimrod. And even the tower itself represents this. I mean, uh, think about the language that's used to set up this picture. They make bricks, which are a totally man-made thing, mm -hmm. and they're all uniform and they're used interchangeably. None of them are unique to create this structure. Mm -hmm. And uh, last podcast I said, what's interesting to me <laughs> a lot, but this is really interesting to me, <laughs> that, that when God creates the temple, it's made out of stone, mm. and they don't even chisel it on site. They chisel it off site in yeah. the quarry, and then they bring it and they just set, they put it all together. and. Stones are created by, there's this picture that's being set up. This tower is being built out of bricks, which are a totally man-made thing. There's unity and uniformity, and they're all interchangeable. They're not unique. And God, when he builds his house, it's out of stones. Mm -hmm. And each stone has its own distinctiveness and its uniqueness. It's unique in shape, size, and strength. If you're creating different structures out of different stones, you have to piece them together in different ways, but they all hold their place. And then you get passages like 1 Peter 2, 4, 5, which mm -hmm. says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected yeah. by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house mm -hmm. to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is that uniqueness, but there's the, there's the unity in it where... As a body of Christ, as we're built into this spiritual temple where the living God dwells, yes, we're unified, mm. but we're all unique. 
And that's a very distinct vision yeah. uh, in contrast to the vision that we're given of what human beings are pursuing at Babel. Mm. Anything to add there? Okay. <laughs> I have like, can I branch off what you said? Like the stones, the living yeah, stones? Yeah, I just, that picture. One of my favorite, and I know this is like a side, a total side thing, but one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible is um, Isaiah 51. Mm. And it says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. And we've talked about righteousness in this podcast before, that it's it's more than just right living. It's um, disadvantaging yourself to advantage someone else. So mm. listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut Ooh. and to the quarry from which you were dug. Mm. Like we're people that are cut from a certain rock and dug out of, out of a certain quarry, mm. then the very next verse says, it explains itself. It says, look to Abraham, your father, mm -hmm. and to Sarah, your mother. Like this is the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were dug. Mm. And we're going to get into Abraham in just a few chapters, because like you said last week, Craig, that um, there's a turning point here. Like we have all these bad experiences of humans, Noah, Babel, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden in chapter 12, we're going to have Abraham, this small flicker of light mm -hmm. that's going to come on the scene. And that's the rock from which we're cut, like that promise of Abraham as he enters the scene. So I know we went way off track, but I just had to take that selfishly, that's what that podcasts moment are to for. say, we don't have it's to. one of my favorite it's verses, awesome. that Abraham is our people. Yeah. Like I think sometimes... Along the lines of what you've been saying, Scott, it's like we're so ethnocentric. Mm -hmm. And as the people of God, the people of this text are our people. Mm -hmm. And we can yeah. say these are our forefathers. That's I mean, right. Noah, Moses, Abraham, this this is our history right. as we've been grafted into it. Mm -hmm. This and text that, is ours. That's mm -hmm. not just uh, theologically true, it's biologically true. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, in 2004, MIT did a study and uh, they found that they call this thing the genetic iso point where they can see that uh, our family trees share not just one ancestor in common but every ancestor in common and that's what they would call the mm -hmm. genetic iso point and they can trace that back and uh, so, and what that means is that the family trees of any two people on earth no matter how uh, dis distantly related they seem trace back to the same set of individuals mm -hmm. and so we now know that this is not just true biblically speaking what is true genetically speaking so let's talk about the implications of that though because i want to go back to what you're talking about this diversity of cultures being mm -hmm. the representation of god's image mm -hmm. and right now you know we have this phrase anti-semitism thrown mm -hmm. around all over the place and i'm not sure people know exactly what they're saying when they even say that sure. so maybe you can enlighten yeah. us into where that term comes from and how it relates to this text yeah it was funny to set this up. I was I was just in Amsterdam for my defense and some other lectures, and I have a Lebanese friend who um, participated in in that um, whole pomp and circumstance, and he gave a lecture. And his kind of um, plea as a Lebanese was, you know, if I'm, for example, sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, I'm labeled an anti-Semite. But he said, I am a Semite. So how can I be an anti-Semite? 
Um, and it's super interesting. We have this concept, and in modern usage, mm-hmm. use of terms and languages, you know, changes. I get that, but that whole idea of anti-Semitic applying only to the Jewish people is is a very young thing. It, it came about with Zionism, you know, about a hundred years ago or 150 years ago. So the Semites are the descendants of Shem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the descendants of Shem are again, like the peoples of the Arabian Peninsula and Middle East and even into uh, Babylon itself. Like some of these linguistic groups uh, include Akkadian, which is like the ancient Babylonian language, and Arabic and Aramaic that Jesus spoke, and Hebrew, of course. And then some of the roots are some of the Eastern African languages as well in Northern Africa. So um, it's interesting to put that in context. Now, the word in common parlance today means to be against Jewish people, but Semites are Arabs and Babylonians and Iraqis and Eastern Africans and all of those original people groups that descended from Shem. Yeah. Eastern Africa, would that be modern people groups? Moroccan? Uh, No, that'd be like uh, Kush is the biblical kind of reference, but that would be be. uh, Sudan. Sudan, okay. Or Ethiopia, uh, Egypt, and yeah, then of course things got historically really, you know, mixed after that because of the Islamic conquests and everything, but yeah. So I also hear, I mean, one of the other common things that I see, unfortunately, in a lot of Christians' social media is posting these sorts of things at the beginning of the Gaza-Israel conflict that were like, well, the Palestinians are an ancient violent people, and they pull some quote out of, you know, uh, some quasi-history book. Well, actually, a lot of those Phoenicians and Canaanites and everything were also descended from Shem. Like, these are Semitic people. Now, things have mixed up and conquered, and there have been Babylonians came in and then carted off and all of that kind of stuff, but it is interesting to put that in context, biblically and historically, even here with the Table of Nations, that there is a common origin. And, I mean, fast forward to a lot of the Abrahamic stories, even if you want to talk about Islam and and Judaism, where most Muslims claim their descendancy from Ishmael, and there's some debate about that. But they're both sons of Abraham. Yeah. And we're blessed and given the sign of the covenant and circ- the first person to be circumcised was Ishmael himself. I mean, there's something very interesting. And they both had 12 sons. There. Yeah, they both had a complete right. tribe of, yeah. So and, and, oh. and God even says yeah. in the text, I'll bless Ishmael too. Right. Because doesn't yeah. Abraham say, oh, that um, Ishmael, Ishmael might live, might before, live you. before you. And it yeah. doesn't mean live as opposed to die. It means live into fullness. In the blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah that whole... That whole story is maybe another podcast, but yeah, that's, that's but, a but, very interesting narrative. But this is where we start to get some of these beautiful answers to the questions that we might have about the state of the world mm-hmm. um, in the chaos that it exists in today, because where this the, the narrative is moving in a very interesting direction, because mm-hmm. you get the story of Cain, right. which is essentially the fracturing of a family. That's right. You get the story of Lamech, which is essentially the fracturing of communities. Mm -hmm. And now you get the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the fracturing of the nations. Mm. That God was designing them to go out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, be a cohesive representation in their diversity of of God's image. But now it's, they are going out but it's they're not going out the way that they were designed to go out. Mm-hmm. It's it's just this fracturing, right. and the fracturing happens as a result of um, pride, mm-hmm. ultimately. Yep. And so 
what role does pride play mm. in the fracturing of humanity? We talked about this a little bit on Sunday, mm-hmm. that pride actually requires that I see myself as above somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, what kind of derives from that then, and we see played out at Babel, is that the combined pride of multiple individuals results in a society that then asserts itself over other societies, or yep. a culture that asserts itself over other cultures. So. It, it is interesting, the movement, as you just kind of recounted Cain and Lemek, we see this kind of moral failure, and then we see societal failure, and now we're seeing theological failure. Like, it's, it's a lack of ability to perceive who God is, and that we could actually access him by building a tower, or give him a, a physical place that's in one place in time, our place in time, our spot on the map, because that's who God is and he's for us. So this is like a theological problem. It's not just a a sort of ethnocentric problem. But it is, it's kind of an interesting story that the ideologies, these, these ideas actually result in bad behavior. They result in oppression and marginalization of people that God has made in his image. So uh, that kind of development through Genesis um, up to this point, I think is super interesting to note too, that the three major areas of life are replete failures. So we've had now societal collapse because of bad ideas and because of bad choices in the physical realm and bad choices in the societal realm. Yeah, as the ideas have consequences, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. they don't just stay in the in the mental space. That's right. When they're actually adopted and ascribed to, then mm-hmm. a certain way of living yeah. occurs, and then that's where you see the ideas yeah. and how good they really are or right. how bad they are, right? right? I look at this text and I'm thinking like I can't help but think about generational sin mm-hmm. and how certain ideas maybe don't even come to fruition until generations mm-hmm. later. Yeah. You know, if a if a person or let's say a a father or a mother in a family um, adopt a certain group of ideas and then live into that, mm-hmm. like it might be great grandchildren that actually are the fruition of those ideas. I mean, sometimes yeah. ideas take time. So you see the end as of well, it. and I feel mm-hmm. like maybe that's what we're seeing even in sure. America today. These like ideas that a few generations ago started having taking root mm-hmm. in certain places, and now we're actually seeing whether or not they were good ideas yeah. because we're seeing the fruit of um, the destruction of actually some of, mm. you know, the humans yeah. that are the, you know, fallout of some of this. So I don't know. What do you think about that? What, yeah. do, you th- what do you think the role of generational sin has in like the table of nations? Because mm-hmm. I do think certain cultures, us especially, are prone to certain types of yep. sin. Sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. of maybe ideas that we've... <clears throat> We take for granted to. a yeah. lot of them are just like the water we swim in. Yeah. Like there are assumptions we that we hold that we don't even That's realize right. we're. And this is this is where um, some of the debates about current social issues get really touchy. So there's this um, concept in psychology called bidirectionality. So I can influence beliefs through behaviors. So, for example, if I that's re- the idea. That's the idea. But okay. you can also influence behaviors through belief. So it goes both directions. And what I saw in my research with extremists was that that happened um, all the time. It's very rare. What kind of extremists? uh, Islamic extremists, yeah. So, for example, many of them gave up their extreme ideologies about, um, you know, the only way to world peace is through domination and Islam must be superior and therefore we're going to subjugate and kill and violence is okay. Um, But how were they influenced to change? It wasn't through argumentations about Mm -hmm. the ideology. 
it was through either a dislocation of societally and individually, and now they're recontemplating who is my neighbor, who is my enemy, and experiencing the love of a different community, and now their ideology is challenged. But there are some people who also, through argumentation, change their ideology and then change their behavior. So it goes both directions. More commonly, it's, it's the inverse. But, yeah, yeah, you said something really interesting there about this superiority complex. Mm-hmm. That Wait, cultures... do you find it to be really interesting? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Uh, um, I forgot. I'm uh, no. so sorry. But uh, the, the Babylonian uh, foundation story is called yeah. Enuma Elish, yeah. and it's public domain. You can go read it. And Genesis 10 and 11 are literally almost a complete and full-scale uh, contradiction to that origin story. And the origin story is that Babylon was founded by the gods, essentially against all chaos in the world, that they were the bastion of order. And therefore, as a, re- as a result of that, the kings of Babylon had every right to plunder the nations mm-hmm. and uh, live out their imperial dream because they were the hope for the world. And so... This story is really interesting as a contradiction to that because it's saying actually when you do that, when you when you create this tower for your name, when you become the center of the universe and you think that you are God's special possession to mm. bless the world, you're actually going to just end up dominating and destroying people. Yeah. And I, I'll scatter you. I'll confuse you in those attempts. Mm-hmm. But that's just the way that human- humanity has always acted, mm. right? I mean, even the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what is that? Babylon, the Babylonians saying, hey, you, we're actually going to give you new names. Mm-hmm. You're going to assimilate to our cultures, mm-hmm. our way of life, because yeah. this is the best way. Mm-hmm. And this this is kind of what, uh, Libby, you were just talking about, too, the, the addition over time of small habits and actions and um, behaviors and codifying them in law and organizing society in a city and then the city's effect over time, it shapes our beliefs, it shapes what we think. And so you alluded to some of the stuff going on in our country. Um, You know, this is no different than what was going on in Babylon. Over time, people really came to believe through these sort of gathering of wealth and, and making of society that they were in fact superior. Yeah. And it had ramifications theologically, socially, and on individual pride. So it's it's helpful to kind of, I, I don't know, it's a challenge to us, and this is more of an application now, but to think about like how have we been shaped by these sorts of things that have happened. And the tendency, of course, is to think, well, my way of thinking and my way of organizing society is superior until all of a sudden you get exposed to maybe the end of that sort of Thing. So we look at historically, even recent history with some of the wars in World War One and Two, and what happens when groups of people start thinking in those ways. But um, that idea of like not just thinking individualistically about my own personal pride or individualistic pride, but what happens then in society when when that has ramifications for the way we organize and the way we make laws and the yeah. way we treat one another societally and treat groups of people. It can go drastically and disastrously wrong. And some of those things are totally unintended consequences. But when you pile one person's pride on top of another and then let it go for generations, it, it can be really disastrous. That's sobering, I think, when you think about leading a family or leading an organization or a workplace. Mm sobering there's a there's a weight there's a cost to leadership and like you said what sort of things are we allowing to influence and this is going to seem so basic Mm. 
But that's why I think it's so important that, I mean, there's so many voices that we hear. Um, and if we're not spending time hearing the voice of God or yeah. being in his word, like there's so many ways that we can just in small ways begin to compromise. Mm-hmm. And then I know I've had this in my own life. You start thinking a certain way, you start spending your time a little bit differently. And then six months later, you wake up and you say, how did I get here? Yeah, exactly. This isn't true. Like yeah. I'm not even anywhere near the plumb line. Exactly. And that's just basically the cost of not staying close to the plumb line of mm-hmm. God's word. And Yep. how he's going to shape us and mold us and change our thinking. I mean, yeah. he says in his word that we will be transformed by the renewing mm-hmm. of our mind. Like spending time in his word is what can actually shape yeah. our thoughts and our, our yeah. ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God is who he says he is. He's not who we make him out to be. Mm-hmm. And just as foolish as it was for them to think that they could build a tower that would actually get them to the heavens and God mm-hmm. has to essentially make a parody of that and say, I got to come down to even see this thing that you think is <laughs> I love that part of your sermon. That's such a good point. It's like these people think they're right? creating this yep. massive thing and God's like, what is that tiny dot down there? Yeah, I got to go, yeah, gotta go check on, uh, see how they're doing down there. But, and I love that actually. This is, that, that is for sure a God showing us his sense of humor but also it's a gentle reminder um, that, yeah, God is not who we say he is. Mm-hmm. And in certain cultures, and we see this even in denominationalism within the church, mm-hmm. we like to put God in these nicely, tightly packaged boxes yeah. and put a bow on it and say, this is who he is. And uh, Jerry Root, who was on the podcast, used to say, God is iconoclastic, that mm-hmm. we make God into this icon and yeah. Clastic just means he breaks out of that. And he constantly is breaking out of these boxes that we're yeah. putting God in. Like, that's what he does. Sure. And so this story really confronts me just mm. individually, you know, as we talk about the issue of pride. Mm. But it also confronts just society. Because, mm. like, what is human history other than one group elevating themselves over another? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, you could almost summarize all of human history with that. phrase it's just one people group elevating themselves over another people group and then another people group doing the same thing Mm -hmm. and when that happens we get horrific circumstances perpetrated by the hands of men like Mao Stalin Hitler Bernard of Clairvaux yeah yeah, this is this story gives us the foundation story Mm. for how those types of things happen right Unless I I was just like I inserted uh, one of the popes, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, uh, that kind of kicked off the Crusades. Unless we think this is isolated only in non-Christian cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Christian history is replete with this sort of thing. And it's really, um, it it should startle us because uh, one of the lines you can trace through kind of Christian thought history, um, Augustine's a wonderful guy, you know, along with... A lot of scholars love reading his work, but one of the things that de- that started with him was this posture towards violence. So Christianity b- became kind of more of a majority, and you know Constantine declares it's fine to be a Christian essentially. And Augustine comes along the next century and is starting to do this ethical thing with when is war and violence permissible? And then you did follow that train of thought forward into the Crusades, and now it's a it's a a, pejor- a must. Like we must. Yeah, be violent in order to conquer the world for Christ. For you know, the kingdom of heaven merges with the kingdom on earth, and so we legitimize then the extermination of other people. So this is Babel happening all over again in Christian history. Yeah, with 
somewhat, you know, uh, um, orthodox Christian thought traced back centuries. So uh, that's a, a very sobering thought for me too, as we often pitch like um, these heresies, if we, if you will, and these these bad societal concepts as non-Christian things, but they've happened squarely within Christendom numerous times in human history too. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. That's a great point. Other than, yeah, it just exemplifies that this is a human issue. Mm. This, this is not a people group issue. No. This is a human heart issue. Um, so let's talk about the implications of pride individually, though, because this pressure, one of the things that I, well, I'd be just interested to hear what you thought about the conclusion that I made that I didn't make first, but that um, that I had heard that fear is actually the much larger base that pride must sit on. Mm. When you think about your work uh, studying Islamic extremists, but this could probably go for any type mm. of extremist, would you say that that shoe fits, that fear is yeah. oftentimes the thing that drives people into mm -hmm. extremist ideologies? Yeah, and I would say whether they realize it or not. To use an example from, um, from my study, one of the concepts that uh, emerged was this idea of environmental extremism or environmental fear. So, and I feel it when I travel to the Middle East. I don't think I was able to sort of um, express it until uh, hearing some of my interviewees talk about the environments that they grew up in. But one lady, for example, said, you know, I, I had this fear existential fear that I didn't know if I would go to heaven. I didn't know if I was in right standing with God. But every time I came home, I didn't know if my brothers and my father, who were sheikhs at, you know, enforcing strict Islamic law, would be upset with me or not. I, I didn't know if I went out in society, if I'd get in trouble with the religious police. I didn't know if I was parenting my kids right or eating the right foods or making a mistake by looking at the TV. Or Like there's this constant fear of mm. not just not measuring up, but a fear of uh, a physical fear of being beaten or punished. Um, and, and so that fear then uh, expresses itself or resolves itself in a posture towards others that replicates the exact same thing. So I exalt myself by creating fear in others. So yeah, fear wow. is an incredible um, motivator, if you will. And uh, like you hear, uh, listen to any political speech. I don't recommend listening to politics. I hate it. It, it drives me nuts. But oh, yeah, listen to any political <laughs> speech, and the main motivator is usually fear. Um, so how Same do we... The news. Uh, precisely. They, they, they've done psychological studies. How do we keep eyeballs on the screen? Uh, how do we do this emotionally? Yeah. And the studies show that the, the more afraid that you can make people, the more that they yeah. their eyes will stay glued to Create the content that you are. states of creating. emergency continually evolving. Yeah. That, yeah. So fear is um, psychological studies, too, have illustrated it's a much more powerful motivator. Um, so I think there's some truth to that, that it, it probably is underneath all of the isms that come out in, yeah. in society, and pride is, is certainly one of them. I agree. Yeah, I, I even think that fear is an incredibly uh, uh, dangerous uh, psychological phenomenon within marriages. I was just having a conversation with a couple, um, I don't know, when it, uh, over the past week, and um, we discussed how a lot of the conflict within their marriage was actually rooted in fear of rejection. Mm. And as a result, it produce the need to control the other individual, mm. which only created more fracturing within the relationship. And it all started from this sense yeah. of fear because certain things that had happened to each one of them previous to their marriage 
had not been worked through and trauma that they had underwent um, that generated this sense of uh, hopelessness, helplessness, Mm. lack of control. uh, And that fear is now wreaking havoc in their lives because pain that's not transferred or transformed is transferred. And uh, so I was just, I was uh, reminded about um, how powerful it is that God's word tells us that his perfect love actually casts out fear. And on the surface, that doesn't mean much until you actually start dissecting what fear actually does in the human heart and the Mm -hmm. type of chaos that it can um, create when it rears its ugly head, not just in societies at large, but even in just one-on-one relationships and marriages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and fear, it's from what you're saying, Trig, is really the the outcome of generational sin in mm-hmm. a sense, where you, and you even alluded to it, Scott, with that situation with that woman in um, her culture, is like when there's um, abuse or trauma that's been put on someone, the result of that is fear. You mm-hmm. live your life with a certain set of glasses on and yeah. you can't look, you can't, that shade, whether it's blue or whatever it is, you can't look at life without seeing it through those kinds of lenses. Mm-hmm. And fear is just such a strange thing to me because either you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. So fear is not something that I feel like you can personally manufacture. Yeah, It's something that you've has been laid onto you in your life. Mm-hmm. You also can't get rid of it just by like talking <laughs> yeah. yourself out of it. It's like a biological response mm-hmm. um, to circumstances that you've lived through. And so I see fear and really the, or the lack of fear or the reduction of fear just being completely spiritual. Yeah. Um, that the fear that you have is because of generational sin or some something has oppressed you or some bad experience that you've been put through. Mm-hmm. And then um, you can only get rid of it by actually the Spirit of God yeah. um, taking it away from you. I mean, I, we see it right here in the text where it says they are motivated by fear. Mm-hmm. We know that because they said, if we don't do this, we're going to get scattered yeah. all over the earth. Why? Yeah. I, and that, that's kind of fascinating to me. What's so bad about that? Like, why would, they be <laughs> a, why would that be their root fear yeah. that causes them to build this huge tower that they would be scattered all over the earth? Yeah. Yeah, and wrapped up in that are concepts of identity and mm. belonging and flourishing, which, mm-hmm. you know, are good things. Yep. But pursued in the wrong way, they can be disastrous. So, um, you know, wanting for um, the things that God originally intended for um, a lack of um, sort of barrier in relationship and wanting for flourishing in the relationships in society around, around us and wanting to build and create. All those are good things. We see that too in the Babel story. But when we start to um, let fear creep in in this zero-sum kind of way, like if we don't, if we don't do this, yeah. then other people are going to do it and our name won't be as great as theirs or they're going to then come in and take what's ours. You know, there won't be enough mud to make bricks. Right. And so all those concepts start to kind of evolve. In our fallen state, it's hard for us to picture um, the universe as God says it is, that it's one of abundance and flourishing. Uh, so we have a hard time thinking outside of that fearful zero sum. Like if, right. if this person is elevated, it means I'm, I'm going to decrease. Yeah. And that's just not the way the world works. God tells us. But yeah. it feels that way. That's yeah. why we get fearful. So Scott's talking about zero sum, and that just means in layman's language, like for every winner, there's a loser. Yeah. 
Like there isn't enough for everyone to be winners. Yeah, the pie's only so big. Yeah, the pie's yeah. only so big. So if I take my piece, yeah. that means if I don't take my piece, you'll take it. Right. Yeah. And so it's like a poverty mindset, a scarcity, yes. scarcity of mindset. Um, yeah. resources and identity. and mm-hmm. But that zero-sum game, yeah. like you're referring to, is not a part of God's economy. Not at all. There's enough for yeah. everybody, and there's identity that's whole for everybody. Right, right. Yeah, and one of the things just that was that I, I think I mentioned offhand on Sunday uh, towards the beginning of my sermon was that we know we have plenty of food to mm. feed the entire world right now, and yet we have millions of people still starving. Sure. <laughs> and just having more with the state that the human heart is in and the condition that society is in now that mm. it's that fractured doesn't actually mean that people will have equal access to the very abundance that God has given the world. And that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. It it should kind of sober us because we can see ourselves and our own society in this Babel story. And I mean, even all the kind of current rhetoric about immigration and refugees and all of these things are echoes of Babel. Like we're afraid of the other coming and taking what's ours. It's a, it's a mindset, a posture. It's a theology of the world that is Babel. It's not um, God's idea of flourishing. Like we, we haven't talked about Acts yet, which is where I went in yeah, my sermon yeah. a number of months ago. But the undoing of Babel um, is kind of God's mission that he then calls the church into. And so we see in that Acts um, verse at Pentecost, uh, all the different cultures, these Semitic peoples then given a language to speak that's common, that's understood in their diversity. So everyone understands, but they're still speaking their own language. Yep. And it's it's all the kind of peoples that are even demonized today, which I found super comical. So they talk about the Medes and the Elamites and the Arabians, and this is like Iraq, Iran, and you know the Palestine where they speak Arabic. It's just it's comical to me. But all these people groups then present um, are, are given understanding into the story, common origin, given a new identity, and dwelt by the Spirit, speaking miraculously in these languages they didn't previously understand. And it's this beautiful kind of unwinding and unleashing of God's blessing to the nations in the way it was originally intended. Which is where this whole story is heading, and it starts with this guy named Abraham, mm. and we're going to start trudging through his story Trudging's the a bad word to use because it makes it sound like it's a chore. Yeah. We're gonna start diving into his story mm. this Sunday, uh, and maybe we, we could talk about that. How is God's plan exemplified by Abraham, mm. starting with him, different from Babylon's attempts at self elevation yeah. and unity? Mm. What's the first thing that God says to Abraham? Mm. Yeah, leave, walk. I will make you and your name great. And it, it's it's the inverse of <laughs> Babylon on every level. Instead of me making a name for myself, it's God making a name for me. And instead of moving east and gathering so we're not scattered, it's leaving and following and walking and hum- being humble and meek. So in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a, a prefigure of, of Jesus and the incarnation. And I mean, there's just so much beauty in that story that 
contrast. And, you know, it's no mistake that the author, that Moses puts it right afterwards, because that this, in essence, yeah. is, you know, the continuation of the line of Abel and Shem that we can trace, the redemptive line that comes through Abraham. And God's saying right from the beginning, this is not like your human inclinations for how you stay secure and flourish and bring about shalom. It's not the way it works in my economy. It's not zero sum. It's it's a, a flourishing and abundance. And that happens through you want to go up, you go down. Everything's inverse. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, we say this around crossroads sometimes that we have to, the default is not going to be good. Like, I mean, that sounds terrible, mm. but if you assume, if you don't continue to stay and maintain and keep the keep the values of God in front of you, the def- you are going to by nature default to something that is not what he wanted. Mm. So that's the rub of being a Christian is constantly trying to keep God's economy in front of you because our tendency is like, it's like having bad alignment. Like your car, mm-hmm. you're just, your tendency is going to always be um, to go off the road or go off the path. And mm-hmm. so um, God's economy is so countercultural yeah. to who we are post Adam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's destructive. Mm. Yeah. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Yeah. Um, Narrow is the path that leads to life. I'm super excited to uh, engage Abraham, this small flicker of light in this like massive amount of darkness. It's almost like Neil said this a couple of years ago. We, we get to this Genesis story, and all the way through the Bible, actually, until we get to Jesus, there's these, uh, it's like a batter in the batting box taking practice swings, where he's mm. just like swinging, 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 and finally <laughs> this home run um, hit yeah. comes. So it's it's fun to see God and his heart a pursuit of people. Sure. Um, because I think that even like it's comical that God had to come down, mm. like you mentioned, Trey, and see this little tiny tower that they thought was so great. But on the mm. flip side, let's talk about the grace of God. Right that he decided to come down mm-hmm. yes. and actually correct the their mercy. ways yeah. and actually scatter them because right. they, they weren't. And I think that's the kind of God that we have, mm. um, that when we do get off the path, that he will come down. And sometimes it doesn't feel good, but he'll put us back on the right path mm-hmm. because he cares about the nations right. and he cares about people. And he's going to course correct mm. because of his love for us. So there's, I mean, it's a funny thing and it's humorous that God had to come down. But on the flip side, there's also a huge grace to that. Yeah. And it's not something that we often highlight as Western Christians, but this is where the indwelling of the Holy Spirit becomes extremely significant because in that moment at Pentecost, God is saying, unless your hearts are supernaturally changed and unless I take up my divine residence in your very being, you're actually incapable of not repeating the patterns of Babel. Mm -hmm. You will just continue. But now, and this is why it should be an alert to all of us who are Christ followers, do our lives look Babel-like mm, mm. in the way that we look at other people, in the way that we look at other cultures? Yeah. Or do we have the inclusive nature of mm. Pentecost that says that the, all of these people God mm. loves, cherishes, wants to redeem and yeah. save? Sure. And But by the grace of God, you wouldn't mm. be saved either. Yeah. So don't you dare other them yeah. the way that the world others them. Yeah. Instead, invite them in mm. through the love of Jesus. So, Here's a crazy story that's come into mind. I, I love studying 
um, the Isaac Ishmael story, and we alluded to that before, but one of the little vignettes that happens in the New Testament, so Paul in Galatians said he spent a few years right after his conversion in Arabia. Well, he, it, it talks about going to the east. And it, like it's just this little thing that's dropped and then not picked up again. And you're left thinking, well, what the heck? Why did he go there? Like yeah. he was a Jewish scholar. Why is he going? And most scholars think this is the Roman province um, that was capitaled in Petra. So Petra today's in Jordan. This was like the gateway to the east. And anytime the Bible talks about the peoples of the east, it's these descendants of Ishmael. So why did Paul go there? Was he hiding? What was he doing? Um, so there's this one Lebanese scholar that talks about uh, and traces the blessing from Ishmael that we talked about earlier all the way through to then Paul's ministry, his first few years of ministry as a, a apostle to the Gentiles to sharing this good news with the people of Arabia, the descendants of Ishmael. I just find that super beautiful. Like even in Abraham's um, taking matters into his own hands, and God still honors the prayer and the blessing to bless uh, the blessing He promised to bless the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac through this prophetic ministry of Paul, who then goes to Arabia. It's just a fascinating kind of story that even in our our, our trying to work out like like um, um, the people in in Babylon did, God's idea of flourishing and and blessing by our own might. Um, even with Abraham making those kind of mistakes, God still is working out this flourishing of humanity and this um, broadcasting of his message of grace um, to all nations. And so this idea that like, I mean, that should help inform some of the conflicts even today or how we look at um, political issues and all of that kind of thing, because there's not a culture under heaven to which God does not want to send his grace and blessing and abundance and has made to reflect his image. It's just a wonderful concept. We can't have a negative posture towards another culture because they have all come and are all receiving God's God's sign of approval, his blessing. Doesn't mean that I'm not trying to you know whitewash all of the things that no the, of course uh, other not. things do there, but we do a lot of horrible things and yet god sure. loves americans. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's what you're saying. God loves all it. people groups and yeah, that yeah. doesn't mean that they that human beings within those cultures don't create cultures of violence or injustice yes. or mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, no, for sure. That's it's a beautiful thing, and it's humbling that it's not just historically accurate that we all mm-hmm. come from one single origin, but it's also theologically beautiful mm-hmm. that we are all made in God's image, and yeah. that means that we each have a unique facet of our stone-like nature cut from the same maker that reflects the glory of God. And as a church, that means, as we always say, you have a street corner that is unique to you, that God has chiseled out for you. Discover what that is, reflect that glory into the world, and then maybe ask the question, what types of people are sitting around my table? Um, Even Jesus addresses it on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, pray for your enemies. And so you could take that one way to say you do have enemies, (laughs) or you could say that that's God's prescription for you to take someone who you think is your enemy Mm -hmm. and turn them into someone that's worthy of God's spiritual involvement, like break in as you pray for them, that they would, he would change your heart, that he would miraculously change the situation. Um, and I think that's, I think if we're all honest, 
I was going to ask this question of you, Scott. Like, all of us would say we don't think of, I mean, maybe not all of us. We would say uh, we don't think of others. When we, God's, we know that God's heart is to not see other people group mm. as others. And yet, mm. um, if we're honest sometimes and we do some self-reflection, not maybe in our ideas they're correct, but like we were talking about earlier, our behavior mm-hmm. doesn't maybe match what we think our ideas are. Um, and so how we live into that self-examination. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, qu- what kind of questions would you ask? Would you say, ask yourself these questions yeah. if you're trying to take an inventory of your mindset towards the, the nations or mm. the people groups? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a humbling question to ask yourself because like we call ourselves Christians, that word means little Christ. So are we, is our behavior the aura that we give off the the general self that we project into the world is it of christ and now none of us exude that 100 percent of the time um all of us are on this journey what theologians call theoformation we're being formed in the image of god who loves the other perfectly who invites the other in invites the other at table and loves enemy um, so we're invited into that. We're, tra- we're we're being formed in that as little Christs. Um, but that's a that's a good kind of you know higher level thing. But the practical questions every day uh, are hard even to stop yourself and ask like Why did I snap at my kids? Why was I grumpy yesterday? Why was I treating them like like they owed me something? I, I don't like I, I you have to catch yourself. And historical Christian kind of spiritual practices have been designed to get at that. So ancient Christians had this idea of the daily office. Um, some of the monastic practices of prayer five or seven times a day were to pause and say, am I being formed in this little, as a little Christ? Am I being formed in, in my behaviors and my thoughts and my attitudes in, in, in the way I theologize? Because, yes, of course, everything's theological, but often we proclaim things that just aren't true. Lots of people say they're Christians, but don't right. act like it. Right. Lots of people pursue nice Christian things, but don't do it in the means uh, and the ways that we've been instructed to. So how do we bring all those things into alignment? And this is the idea of wholeness that we're called into. This right. is shalom. This is flourishing, that we have to bring behaviors and beliefs and our ideas of organizing society into congruence. Yeah, I, I love that answer um, because some of those things that we've talked about on the podcast, even in other episodes like silence and we're mm. going into this 24-7 prayer, those, they're yeah. spiritual disciplines mm-hmm. is really what you're talking about and yeah. the, the difficulty in today's age to, to stay on top of keeping yeah. God's word and the heart of God in the, in mm-hmm. the forefront of our lives. Yeah. The spiritual disciplines that have been a part of church history for the ages, like you said, are meant to be those guardrails yes. for us. Right. So really it's just a matter of choosing to live into those. Sure. And we can't do it on our own. Like no. we need other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the monks that get a bad rap for spending a lot of time by themselves lived in community. They were, by, they were with a group of brothers and sisters who all practiced the same thing and sung the same hymns and um, so uh, this is something that I think we miss today, especially with a lot of our technology and whatever. We tend to think that our belong, our needs for belonging and our, our um, Christian walk can be done very individualistically or online or whatever it is. But no, we, we need community. And again, this is where it comes back to these the beauty of the cultures that are made. Like our culture here, we need to learn about our own too, is very individualistic. Mm-hmm. 
we have this idea that I can just do it. I'm, I'm just going to go out and pull myself up by my bootstraps. We love that saying. It's crushing. Yeah. But we need other people to walk with. And um, yeah, the spiritual disciplines are, are super important, but so is doing them in community. Yeah. 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 Even when you try to name yourself, you know that you can't mm. because this is where we get the phrase, the fear of God versus the fear of man. Like you will fear man. If you don't fear God, you'll fear man. Right. And it's not like a decision whether you fear or not. It's just who, who you're looking to, to affirm that identity. Yeah. So you need someone outside of you to name you mm -hmm. and only God can do that, which is why as we move into Genesis chapter 12, it is so beautiful that God says, no, I'm, I'm actually the one that's going to do this for you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then out of that place of security, that actually dispels the fear of the other mm. because we, are, we have been radically included into the family of God. We are radically accepted by him mm -hmm. um, if we receive Christ and his forgiveness yeah. over our lives. Mm -hmm. A lot to think about, especially yeah. going into the new year. Mm. We have opportunities you know, to think about how do we want to shape, spend our yeah. time, who do we want to spend our time with? What kind of disciplines do we want to have mark our mm. our lives? And not sometimes, just like, not just like New Year's resolutions, but bigger picture. Like, yeah. what kind of template do we mm -hmm. want to like fall over yeah. the days of our time? Right. There's this interesting concept that my wife Lindsay helped helped us think through last year, and uh, the idea of a rule of life is nothing new. But um, it's not just um, what things do I want to start doing, New Year's resolutions or whatever, but what recognizing taking time to recognize the influences that are shaping and curating our desires and loves yep so as human beings were i forget who said this i think it was one of some famous person but we're desiring creatures this was also a jamie smith thing who teaches at calvin here uh it's it's augustine i think but our our um our whole self is structured to worship and so we are going to be drawn into things that are um counterfeits, uh, they're substitutes for all of that. And so recognizing, taking time to say, all right, what, what, a, what in my life is shaping me and curating my, uh, my heart desires away from things that the spiritual disciplines would, would push me towards God, but what things are pulling me away? Yeah, yeah we're being discipled whether we know it or not. Right. It's just what is discipling you? Mm -hmm. What are you being formed by? Yeah. And I don't know if I said it mm -hmm. on Sunday, and if I didn't, I had the thought immediately afterwards that it's interesting that we form our technological devices and mm. then they form us. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So we just need to be careful. It doesn't mean that uh, iPhones are bad, technology mm. is bad, human advancement is bad. It's just what what are we doing with the things that we create? But they're not neutral. They're either. not. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. and they will sway. Either. Yeah. So a lot to think about. I think this is a good place to to kind of land the plane. Uh, do we have anything else that would be important for people to know? Uh, we'll just remind people that we have 24-7 prayer mm. starting in uh, on January 31st, going through the 7th. Scott, give us a last... December 31st. December. What did I say? January. <laughs> uh, yeah, so December 31st through January 7th. Well, mm. in light of all of the brokenness of Babel, Scott, just give us a word of encouragement to finish mm. today. 
What was coming to mind as we were talking there the last few minutes was uh, one of the um, people I interviewed was this very endearing lady with a terribly traumatic story. Her whole family died in a in a bombing she watched from across the street. And she came from an extremist family, didn't like her father and her brothers because they abused her, but goes through this whole thing and immigrates. And now she's a uh, long, long story, but she's become a believer. And she said at one point in the interview, you know, God tells us to love our enemies, but it is so hard. <laughs> and I just, I love her kind of humility and the honest way that she draws that out. Like we're trying to be like Jesus, but it is so hard. Yeah. And I think that could be echoed in our context today. Everything is pushing us away from a right theology, away from a right way of organizing community, away from um, treating others in the, in the manner prescribed by Jesus that, that God wants of us. Um, and it is hard. <laughs> it's not easy. But when we can participate with God in loving enemy, loving neighbor, and seeing the Samaritan as the hero of the story, and we could go on and on and all the you know, parables that Jesus listed to illustrate that, it is so, so satisfying. When we get a little taste of that, of a Tuesday morning here and all that's happening, or of loving the neighbor that I really don't like so much, and then realizing that my, my desires are shaped and transformed even in that obedience and doing the right thing. It's such a wonderful, wonderful experience, and that is a taste of the divine. That's what it means to participate in Christ. And um, so I'm, it's a reminder for me um, as well that um, the journey is worth it, and we need each other. We need those stories. We need the cross-cultural stories. We need the um, amazing stories of extremists coming to faith, but we also need each other right here in Grand Rapids to encourage one another along in the walk. Amen. Mike drop is what we call that. Well, Scott, so great to sit down with you this morning and Libby, you too. Thanks, Scott. Uh, We're grateful for you, your ministry, uh, your voice in our church, and uh, your mind, your big brain. Big, big (laughs) brain. So uh, if this podcast has been serving you, hit follow and the notification bell. And the Instagram that Quinn's wife Haley so graciously is running is at Crossroads Locker Room. So if you want to follow that, go and do that. And then lastly, but not least, we are entering into 24-7 prayer as a church. Get on our website, sign up. Let's do this thing together as a family. It's going to, I think, be a huge blessing to our church and also to your life individually. So let's do it. Have a great week.